0: Yeah, you're busy. I, you know, I thought I just sort of plucked you out of out of Twitter. I said, "Wow, this man says. I like his tweets. I like his. (laughs) I think he." He refers to. He's pretty funny. He's pretty. I, I like this guy. but we have the same first name. I think he'd be a person, great person to interview. Then I started doing some research, and I mean, you've been no, on Spycast. You. You've been on War in the Rocks. Yeah. I'm talking to one of the insiders of the of the intelligence community <laughs> right now. Really glad to have you.
1: No, it's it's my pleasure. It's uh, I'm I, it's a topic I'm passionate about, and you're uh, you're you're very kind.
0: My guest is Dr. Mark Stout directs graduate programs in global security studies and intelligence at Johns Hopkins Krieger School of Arts and Sciences Advanced Academic Programs in Washington, D.C. He's previously worked for the Department of the Army, the State Department, CIA, and the Institute for Defense Analysis. He's recently co-authored the book Spy Chiefs, Volumes 1 and 2, and has co-founded the North American Society for Intelligence History. We talk about history, intelligence, and finish up with a chat about Cold War, Ottawa, in the successful partnership with Canadian and U.S. intelligence agencies, begin transmission. So, how did that? How did you start getting interested in this? I mean, we did go over some questions that I wanted to ask, yep. but I, I kind of like to just jump in and start a conversation. Yeah. I, I, one yeah, of the sure. things I would like to focus on is the history of in- intelligence.
1: Yeah. So, I got interested in intelligence history while I was already working in the intelligence community. Um, I'd first come to Washington right in the last, I guess, three years of the cold war and worked for a couple of years on a, uh, in a policy position in the Pentagon, working on conventional arms control in Europe, which was a big, huge deal at the time. And, uh, anyway, one, one thing led to another, and I got a, uh, got a job at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the state department. I won't bore with the details, but frankly, there was not a lot of planning, uh, just a lot of, you know, fortuitous circumstances. And I was working on, um, primarily Russian, um, political military analysis, um, And um, anyway, 1997 comes along and 1997 was the 50th anniversary of the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. So it had a couple different names along the way, but it was the 50th anniversary. And uh, the, the the front office wanted, you know, a, a short, uh, you know, few page history of INR to be written, basically just to hand out to everybody in the bureau and and you know sort of feel good about uh, hey we have this long and illustrious history, and INR was small enough they didn't exactly have a staff historian, uh, and somebody in the front office said oh Stout he you know he seems smart and he seems interested in history generally which was true why don't we assign him to write this history of us. And that was literally the first time i had ever really thought, in, you know, uh, more than sort of a passing way about intelligence history. And it sort of uh, sort of built from there. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And I, uh, I uh, eventually left the intelligence community in 2003, did some other things in the national security world. But on towards the end of that, I started thinking, like, I need to be thinking about career number two, which turned out to be a career in education primarily. And in order to create options there, I wanted to do a Ph.D., and, you know, history was clearly what I was going to do the PhD in. And I'd become really fascinated at this point by intelligence history. I'd sort of made it my hobby. And so I did my PhD in history at the University of Leeds in the UK. I wrote about the origins of modern American intelligence in World War I, which is not the normal story. Happy to bore you with that if you'd like at some, some point in this conversation. And uh, yeah, sort of one thing led to another. That got me that got me a job at the uh, International Spy Museum as their historian and curator for three years, which was a wonderful job, and helped get me, you know, first an adjunct and then a full-time and then a full-time management job here teaching at Johns Hopkins uh, University School of Arts and Sciences in Washington, where I put together an intel program, which is not a history program, but which has a lot of history woven into it. Um, because I believe that history is um, history is very important. I mean, it doesn't directly give you policy lessons, but it helps you understand where you've been and what kinds of critical questions you ought to be asking about today's situation and um, and is really relevant as you're thinking about, you know, going into the future. Like, you know, hey, we, we're thinking about doing X. Have we ever tried X in the past? And if so, like, how did that work out? It won't work out the same way this time, but maybe there's some lessons we can learn in just in terms of things we ought to, you ought to be thinking about along the way that bit us last time. Or it failed last time because of X. Let's make sure that X doesn't happen this time, those sorts of things. And one of the great things about intelligence history, too, um, in the United States is that, I mean, first off, it's a burgeoning field in that there's really a ready audience out there for it. Lots of people, both, you know, uh, professional intelligence officers and and veterans, uh, you know, intelligence historians, but also a lot of the lay public is just very, very interested in intelligence history. So there's a great demand and there's lots to be done right? I mean, there's just lots and lots of things that have really never been looked into very much. So it's not hard to find new, interesting. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're interested in, you know, making a mark, like even important things to do in, in studying and, and researching intelligence history these days. So it's, it's, a, it's a great field to be in. And it's something I'm passionate about, you know, as a historian, but also because I think history is a great sort of point of entree for people who um, are interested in a career in the intelligence community.
0: I started researching a, a television pilot that I was writing, and I got, started diving into the Stasi and the KGB. And oh, wow, yeah. Learning a little bit more about that. I wasn't stationed in Berlin for a little while, so I know – I mean, I, I knew people who who wouldn't tell me what they did. <laughs> but that's probably about the limit of – There were a lot of um, those people
1: of, running around Berlin in the Cold War, I'm led to believe. I wasn't there. Though. And I got to say that if I could uh, – you know, buy a very expensive pill and wake up tomorrow speaking a foreign language, I would definitely buy the German pill. You know, it, it would be so useful to me. But I've reached that point in life where learning languages is not as easy as it was when uh, when I was younger. So I'm sort of sort of stuck with the language skills I've got, I think.
0: What are your language skills?
1: Um, so English, obviously, and I read professional French pretty well, which has actually been very useful both in my professional career. I mean, I never worked on France, but um, nonetheless, uh, you know, worked a lot with uh, NATO folks and so forth and so on. And French was intermittently, but in, in non-trivial ways, useful to me there. And I have done some research in French, not a whole lot. Bits and pieces, you know, occasionally French stuff shows up in my intelligence history research. I focus primarily on American intelligence history in World War I and also the early Cold War. But in addition, gosh, 10, 12 years, ago, 12 years ago now, I co-authored a popular history related, uh, regarding World War I, a history of the Sixth Army Group in World War II. So that was the, the American and the French uh, forces that landed in southern Germany in August of 1944, sort of the second invasion after the Normandy D-Day invasion. I co-authored it with a friend of mine, uh, formerly of the agency, actually, who'd written a number of these. And I did the, I did the French First Army part of that. Uh, so that was fun. North American Society for Intelligence. Can you tell me about that? The North American Society for Intelligence History. This came out of a series of conversations held on the margins of the biannual Cryptologic History Symposium, which is held in odd-numbered years by the foundation of the NSA. And it's, a, it's an intelligence history uh, conference. It's held uh, every two years in Maryland. But the problem is, and it's a great conference, and I I go almost every time, but the problem is that it's sort of, it's basically in the world of signals intelligence, and these days increasingly cyber, though there isn't a lot of history there yet. And that's great, but there's a lot of intelligence history that isn't about uh, signals intelligence, isn't about codes and ciphers and that sort of stuff. And I think two of those straight, um, various of my colleagues had, you know, stood in in uh, in the aisles afterwards and talked about how wouldn't it be great if there was a broader home for intelligence historians here in the United States and Canada? And, you know, so we got this for SIGINTers, they're for SIGINT historians, that's great. And the Society for Military History Conference always has two or three panels that are about intelligence history. And the Slavic Studies Conference always has two or three panels that are about intelligence history. And the International Studies Association Conference usually has like 30, 35 panels on intelligence, of which two or three are about history. But we don't have sort of our own thing, our own, you know, uh, professional academic home. And so I, along with two Canadian colleagues and two other American colleagues, got together and we formed one. We formed the North American Society for Intelligence History. We are just taking baby steps at this point, but I'm the, I'm the founding president. And we're going to have our inaugural conference in October in Washington at the International Spy Museum, actually in the couple of days immediately following this year's Cryptologic History Symposium. And then the idea is we'll probably do a quick follow-on in 2020, probably up in Canada, and then settle down in a rhythm where it'll be every two years. So our conference will be every two years on the even-numbered years, and the Cryptologic History Symposium will be every two years on the odd-numbered years. And uh, we put out a call for papers, and we got a great response from across the English-speaking world. I think we're going to have a really, really strong conference. I uh, can't quite publicize the program yet, but probably within the next week or two, and registration will probably open uh, late spring, early uh, early summer. But I think it's going to be terrific, and I think it's going to provide a, a useful home for people who do this, because there's you know we 're just a small slice of all sorts of other academic communities that really ought to be talking to each other and and, and our goal is to enable that so uh, so i 'll be standing down as the founding president uh, at the end of this year, but it'll be it 'll be in good hands uh, going forward and uh, and i 'm very proud of what we 've done yeah it seems
0: like there 's a literary organizations of espionage and intelligence you know uh, there 's a fiction element. That seems to be pretty strong out there, at least from doing oh, podcasts and meet, oh, meeting other podcasters.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And and there's a there's a lot of really interesting work being done on the history of um, pop, pop culture representations of intelligence. It's not my particular field, but there's some really interesting work being done there. And in fact, there's going to be a panel devoted to that at our conference. And then if memory serves, one or two other stray papers and other panels um, uh, on that. Um, yeah, there's some really interesting work being done there. And and in some. Uh, And in some places, you know, the United States and the United Kingdom in different ways, there's been a very interesting sort of interplay between the world of spy fiction and the real world of intelligence. I mean, the British intelligence services, the MI5 and MI6, as they're popularly known, were born out of a spy scare in the early 20th century, which was ginned up almost entirely out of whole cloth by a spy novelist who was uh, purporting to have you know, run across all this evidence of German spies being under every bush in Britain and, you know, and, and writing, switching from writing novels to writing exposés of the German spy threat, which got the attention of Whitehall and, um, you know, largely because people were, you know, writing in to the, to the government and writing letters to the editor of the Times of London and that sort of thing. Like, what are we doing about this threat? And that got the government sort of looking at it. And that led to the creation of MI5 and MI6. Going forward, um, I've heard, I've heard Dame Stella Remington uh, talk about this. So she was head of MI5. Uh, for a number of years in the 90s, and and seen it sort of hinted at by um, other MI6 officials, that James Bond, in many ways, though fictional, was one of the best things that ever happened to British intelligence. That it helps sort of smooth the way in, in, in liaison relationships with foreign countries, that it helps get more people applying to the agency, that sort of thing. And on the American side, I mean, there's been a there's been, a, I think, a lesser but nonetheless a, a real interplay as well between the world of um, fiction and the real world of intelligence. Uh, the late Tony Mendez talks about having been a, you know, asked by one director of CIA to, to design a widget like you know, one that he'd seen Q uh, produce in one of the James Bond movies. Uh, You know, just for instance, and there's a rich tradition in America, much richer, I would say, than in Britain, actually, of former intelligence officers, mostly CIA, though not exclusively writing spy novels. Um, You know, some of them very good. Uh, Of course, I don't mean to slight John Le Carre here. Who are your favorites? I don't read a lot of spy fiction, to be honest with you, but far and away, my favorite is Le Carre. Mm, Yeah, me too. Yeah. um, I I mean, he's just brilliant as an author, um, just generally. Also, there's a couple of ways, and I, I speak here as somebody who doesn't study literature. I speak as a historian and as a former intelligence practitioner. There's a couple of ways of thinking about fiction, spy fiction. One, one is uh, what I call the Tom Clancy test. Does it get the, does it get the nomenclature and uh, you know, the terminology and the wiring diagrams and all of that? Does it get that stuff right? But then there's the, what I call the John le Carré test, which is laying all that aside does it ask the right questions? Does it has the right feeling? Does it sort of make you think about the same sort of philosophical or political uh, issues that being, you know, actually being in the business uh, does? Le Carre does not pass the Tom Clancy test, and I don't think he gives a damn, uh, but um, he's really good at making you, you know, making you think about many of the kinds of, of ethical and political issues that real intelligence officers face. I mean, it is fiction, right? So that gets, you know, cranked up to 11, but it has that verisimilitude to it that I that I really appreciate it. I'm much more more interested in in something like that than than something that knows you know what the room number of the cia director's office is right i just yeah you know, it's not interesting <laughs> by itself yeah
0: one thing i like about lakari is it's he really seems to bring out the loneliness and these kind of solitary decisions that that yeah. that you have to make in that <laughs> business i think his father was a i was reading about that his father was a con man
1: i know there's a biography out of him recently which i have not read i i, I need to it's on my list but I actually also like both TV productions of Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, or both sort of video productions, one television with Alec Guinness um, and one the movie with Gary Oldman. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm also, speaking of television, an enormous fan of The Americans. I don't know if you watch The Americans at all about mm-hmm. you know, Soviet illegals. And I thought I thought that was just terrific, again, because it's very well written just as drama. But also I really appreciate it as somebody who – you know, knows a a reasonable amount about Cold War intelligence history. And though I don't work on it, knows a reasonable amount about Soviet intelligence history specifically. What I really liked in that show is that almost everything that they did in terms of tradecraft and some of the things that they did in terms of just sort of bigger level uh, events had a real basis in history. I mean, they really, really exaggerated them, but you could go through them like, ah, I know when that really happened. And, you know, two episodes later, ah, that's a reference to this guy or, oh, that's a reference to this period of time here. Or that's a reference to this particular spy case. Um, And again, they, you know, they, they really, you know, amp it up in that show. But if you accounted for that, you could learn a lot.
0: Was was there anything that really struck you? Was there anything that really struck you? Like, ah, I know what that is. How did they know that?
1: Oh well, the Bulgarian umbrella uh, plays a plays a part there. The early 1980s uh, war scare plays uh, a part there. Um, much of the much of the entire conceit about sort of the family aspects with the the children who've been born as Americans um, reflects just a small anecdote that's in a rather obscure book called Biological Espionage, which is um, basically about the Soviet um, I think Russian as well use of illegals to collect biotechnology information and about a family of illegals who were in France, uh, not the United States, but who were in France and had served there for many years and had a teenage child, a son, if I recall correctly. Don't, don't hold me to that. At some point while their child was a teenager, mom and dad got called back to Moscow, just in the normal course of things. And so they told their kid they were going on vacation in the Soviet Union. and It was only after they got off the plane and were on the other side of passport control in Moscow but they told the kid that he wasn't really French, he was Soviet, and he'd just come home, right? I mean, you, know, <laughs> you could see that that sort of looming through this entire series, uh, and there's a, there's a lot of other... Wasn't
0: there a similar situation in Canada about four years ago?
1: Oh, yeah, there was. I'm trying to remember now. If I recall correctly, and I may have this wrong, but wasn't that a one or two of the children of... Some of the illegals who got arrested here in the U.S. in 2010, but who had come through Canada. There was a recent case there uh, where the kids want to be Canadian. What a hellish situation to to be in, right? I mean, can you imagine, you know, you get to, you know, you're 15 or 20 and in the eyes of your your parents and in the eyes of the, the country you think you're a citizen of, you're something else. You know, people are messed up enough when they're teenagers, right? And drop that on them. I know it's like,
0: wow, it's kind of cool you're a spy, but oh, <laughs> I don't want to live in Belarus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have any friends there. So, so while I have you, while I have some time left with you, I just want to kind of exploit this for my own um, personal edification as well. Could we just do that? Like, just do like a quick history of of intelligence.
1: Well, I mean, the thing is that the old joke about uh, espionage is that it's the second oldest profession. You know, there is substantial truth to that. Most of the earliest te- texts of human civilization, major ones at least, have some sort of reference or another to intelligence or espionage, right? The Bible, you know, the, 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 the writings out of um, uh, early India, um, you know, somewhat later on, but the Quran and the hadith in the in the Islamic world, obviously Sun Tzu, or if you're an expert in that sort of thing, which I'm not. Swinza, uh, his Art of War, which is uh, written in the four or five hundreds B.C., you know, chapter thirteen in that is the first surviving spycraft manual, uh, which is actually very sophisticated. And aside from a, aside from a um, something that came out of India about about a hundred years later, to my mind, it's by far the most sophisticated thing written on the subject of espionage until probably Europe of the 19th century. So, yeah. So, you know, for as long as there has been competition um, and rivalry between human societies, there's been something that looking backwards, at least we can recognize as intelligence. And espionage is the, you know, the earliest and most um, technologically simple form of that espionage with the Mod 1 mark one, mod one eyeball. I'd recommend um, actually to people, Christopher Andrews' new book, The Hidden World, which is a a global history of of intelligence, you know, Plato to Nato, as he says. Um, And it really makes this point well, that if you look backwards with today's eye at history, and that's a, you know, a little bit of a historical sin, but if you do that, you see things in every century on every continent that, you know, we can recognize as intelligence. It was only in the But really, in the 19th century and with gusto in the 20th century, that it started to become this heavily bureaucratized and heavily um, technology-focused endeavor. But it's been around since forever.
0: And whose responsibility was it traditionally?
1: Yeah. So traditionally, it was the responsibility primarily of commanders and military leaders, uh, commanders sorry, military commanders and political leaders, rather, who... um, would, you know, individually send out uh, scouts or spies or whatever, depending on precisely what sort of situation we're talking about, who would then report directly back to them. But when you hit the ninth, and there are certainly exceptions, but broadly speaking, that was true. I mean, Elizabeth, Elizabethan England, for instance, um, under Walsingham, had a very small but nonetheless organized um, intelligence office that worked for the crown. But by and large, it was sort of one-offs that reported directly to the, to the sovereign. But what happens in the 20th century particularly, and that's up, true even up through Napoleon, um, what happens particularly in the, in the 19th century rather is that you get the rise of Prussia. Which we today know, know as Germany, and the Prussians invented this um, great general staff to, to, you know, be the the brains of their military, and they quickly realized that in the nineteenth century, you know. Uh, we, Prussia, and our, our rival powers here in Europe are able to mobilize enormous armies, and this requires huge industrial production to provide weapons and ammunition and so forth to these armies, and we move them around with railroads, and all of this stuff requires data, mm. right? How many people can we actually, um, given the population we've got, how many people can we actually put under, under arms? How many rifles and how many musket balls can we actually produce to you know, uh, arm these people, and can we move them from wherever they, it is to— they are to wherever it is that we want them to be to fight a war against France or Austria or whoever in sufficient amount of time, uh, given the railroad network that we have. This is all about data. And the
0: Prussians didn't have a lot of resources that they could waste. I mean, they had to make the most of what they had.
1: Right. I mean, the geography put them in, I mean, well, a pretty darn tough neighborhood, right? Um, yeah. So they, they needed to think about this sort of thing carefully. Now, all that stuff that I'm just telling you about is data that the Prussians needed about themselves. But once they started... Thinking about that, they realized, well, just as it's helpful to know how many people we can put, how many armed men we can put on the French border and how much time, it would actually be really helpful to be able to figure out how many armed people the French can put on our border in what period of time, right? And that's intelligence, right? And then, so the Prussians had this idea that like, hey, we should have a data office in our military headquarters, right? And this is, you know, this is something that requires specialists, you know, data geeks, and then the Prussians proceeded to fight three very successful wars, like really dramatically successful wars against Austria and then Denmark and then France, uh, you know, kind of kicked butt all over Central Europe. And that got everyone's attention. And pretty soon, you know, the French and the Russians and then later on the British, etc., were copying them. And then much later, the Americans copied all of those folks. And we were off to the races with the kinds of, um, you know, modern intelligence offices that we see today and, and expanded out from the military, of course. Yeah, that's, to my mind... Um, you know, the origins of modern American, not sorry, modern American, but modern intelligence is with the Prussians. And then, so then World War One comes along and World War I um, takes all of that. And obviously you get even bigger militaries, right? And so they need even more data. And on top of that, you've recently invented the airplane. So now you've got a whole new mode of collection, right? You can actually see over the next hill in ways that you just could not before. Um, and also um, telecommunications particularly by telegraph, but also by radio, is becoming a big deal for militaries, which then opens up opportunities for signals intelligence. Um, and on top of that, also, uh, World War I is not only fought you know, in the trenches in France and in you know, northern Italy and uh, out on the Eastern Front, um, but it's also an ideological battle. It's, it's an a ideological war, a political and social war, which pits entire societies against each other. So you have a big rise in counter espionage and counterintelligence forces. Right. So there's a great concern about sabotage and subversion and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, what are the Germans doing to, uh, you know, uh, bring uh, subversive pacifist ideas to the United States? Short answer, actually, not very much, but we were very concerned about it. you know what's the German espionage threat in France during World War one? Well, it was actually pretty severe. There were quite a lot of German spies running around. The French needed to catch those you know etc et etc cetera, et cetera. so again, that's another dimension across which modern intelligence um, staffs and agencies expand during World War one and then you know all of that just gets accelerated and and uh, the and the, the volume of data and all that sort of stuff. the technological sophistication just expands and expands in the in the 100 years since then.
0: So it seems like with the expansion of available information that the communities had to adapt as well. No,
1: that's absolutely right.
0: Yeah. What were the yeah. major developments? I mean, you said, you know, there was air, there was telegraph in World War 1, but what are some of the other big jumps?
1: Those were probably the two biggest ones that, I mean, and I guess implicit in that also is the invention of the camera, which was a 19th century invention. Uh, those are those are probably the two or, or three, I guess, uh, biggest ones that drove things. And then, you know, in World War II, in a modest sort of way and, and you know, with increasing importance thereafter, the, the computer, the digital computer, which does all sorts of things. So it takes code, technically cipher making to like literally orders of magnitude whole new level at the same time it takes cryptanalysis the breaking of cipher systems to a whole new level it also opens up opportunities for storing retrieving sorting searching against and and then increasingly analyzing large masses of data that just would have overwhelmed people in earlier decades let alone earlier centuries the intelligence community is slinging around data you know by the by the terabyte, which was not the way things worked during World War II, and was really not the way things worked during World War I, and was sure not the way things worked in the Prussian general staff in 1860. I'm trying to remember the precise terminology that the US intelligence community uses now. Something to the effect of there's been an acceleration of volume, velocity, and variety of data. Um, And you have to have computers, um, otherwise, I mean, our brains are just not big enough we're not we're not even vaguely in the game as as fleshy human beings of being able to deal with the kinds of volume velocity and variety of data that intelligence communities um, intelligence agencies are able to collect these days
0: and i knew we weren't going to talk about biases but it just seems like with technology te- i saw this quote on instagram i don't even know if it was pablo picasso but he said i don't like computers they they only have answers they don't have they don't have any questions <laughs> So I was thinking, I mean, do we look at this huge pile of data and information? Is there a bias that there, that the answer is somewhere in that pile?
1: Yeah, so, so it's a good question. So I mean, a couple thoughts on that. So first off, to answer your question directly, I mean, yes, but I think I think that bias is more on the part of the policymakers and the intelligence consumers who want answers, damn it, mm-hmm. right? Intelligence analysts, and, and I'm speaking here about, you know, the United States and the, the Five Eyes uh, countries with whom, you know, I, I've worked a good bit. I can't don't necessarily claim this is, a, you know, the universal situation about intelligence agencies in every country, everywhere. What countries? The U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, sort of become a truism now among intelligence analysts that there are certain kinds of intelligence questions to which there are answers, uh, secrets and puzzles, right? It may be really hard to find those answers, but there's an answer. Right. So, you know, we're, we're doing this on video. I'm looking over your shoulder. I see a, a, a drawer over your right over your right shoulder. And I don't know what's in that drawer. To me, that's a secret. But I can imagine ways of finding out what's in that drawer. OK, but there are other intelligence questions to which there are no answers. Right. There may be reasonable hypotheses like what are you going to do tomorrow? Well, even if you told me what you're planning on doing tomorrow, um, and even if I had some assurance, I don't know how I'd get it, but even if I had a sh- some assurance you were telling me the truth, circumstances change. You may change your mind. You might, you know, God forbid, break your ankle and spend all tomorrow in a hospital room, which was probably not in your plan. Like all kinds of things could happen that could change your plan. So there are those kinds of questions to which there are no answers.
0: Well, well, there's Google now. I mean,
1: the Google trove <laughs> Google location
0: mean- information. That- <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, but it it doesn't yet know where you're going to be tomorrow. It, uh, it probably it, knows where you can, are right this minute. It but. can predict it, right? <laughs> yeah, it, well, right, and that's the thing. It can predict it. It can come, you know, uh, hypothetically here. You're right. It's not the
0: key that will open the door, but right. it's yeah. shaped like it, a key. We-
1: Yeah, exactly, there, that's a good way of putting it. The other thing I'd say is that, and this is not something I know tremendously a lot about, but there's this field now of activity-based intelligence, which um, has largely, I believe, come out of the the world of geospatial intelligence. And the concept there is completely the reverse of, hey, I've got a question I want an answer. It's, here's a bunch of stuff that's going on. Is there anything interesting in there? (laughs) Right, look through this automated system, automated system, please look through this large pile of data and tell me if there are patterns in there that I would want to know about, right? What kind of emergent things do you see in there that I wouldn't have thought to ask for? You you let it specify what variables it's going to measure the standard deviation on. So yeah, and I am... I, I've now told you, you know, 100% of what I know in this field. But there's looking at unstructured data and seeing what emerges out of it without having particular a priori questions of it is very much a, well, it's an emerging field in the intelligence world. And again, something that's enabled by, well, first off, arguably made necessary uh, by computers, but also enabled by computers.
0: It reminds me of that scene in A Beautiful Mind where he's just looking at this wall of all these numbers and they start lighting up yeah right. and the <laughs> pattern the pattern emerges for them so this is all interesting stuff we like i could talk with you for a while about or at least listen to you i, I was listening to your other interviews and i thought oh, well, there are going to be some awkward pauses in this conversation <laughs> i think i have some gaps i wanted to ask you I, I've, I've heard that there's been a lot more places where you can study intelligence whether it's yeah you know, different levels of degrees and certificates and I mean, John Hopkins is, is is obviously one of the big ones. So, could you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, well, the first off, the one thing that really strikes me as an intelligence historian is if what you're interested in studying is intelligence history. While there are one-off classes at a variety of universities here in the United States, really, the United States does not is really not the greatest place to do that, but in Britain, there are lots of programs where you can study intelligence history. Warwick, uh, where my friends Richard Aldrich and Chris Moran teach, you know, some great offerings at King's College in London, and Christopher Andrew, I don't think he's actually taking PhD students anymore, but, you know, he certainly produced a, a whole generation of intelligence historians coming out of uh, Cambridge, Um, So if you're doing intelligence studies, quote unquote, in Britain, you're probably studying intelligence history. and There's a lot of great places to do that in Britain. In the United States, the flavor of intelligence studies at universities is much more oriented on sort of political science, national security studies, public policy and sort of a national security realm and practitioner kinds of orientations. Right. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, My hypothesis is that in Britain, the Official Secrets Act, and this is also true in Canada, the Official Secrets Act um, is pretty darn draconian, and a lot of, not a lot of former intelligence officers feel themselves at liberty to write and speak or teach and so historians have to stand in for them. The question of what is it that MI6 or the CIA or the KGB is doing is a, is an interesting and sexy one, right? It obviously, you know, I can see why it would attract students and put them in seats in in, you know, university auditoriums. If practitioners can't speak to that, they have to turn to historians. That's my hypothesis. Whereas in the United States, you know, Lord knows there's lots that former practitioners can't say and do, but by comparison, we're very free to speak and write and teach. And so practitioners, former practitioners, And political scientists are able to do this, and there's less in in the way of history programs. But there's a number of good schools in the United States. Obviously, I'm biased, but uh, we have a couple of different programs here in the Johns Hopkins Krieger School of Arts and Sciences in Washington in intelligence. I I run a post-baccalaureate certificate, so it's basically half a master's degree in intelligence. Uh, Most of our students have actually started their careers here in Washington and either have a master's degree and are looking to sort of augment that with something that will make them attractive in the intelligence community, or doing that intelligence certificate actually concurrently with a master's degree in some substantive field of interest in the intelligence community. We've also recently launched an MS in geospatial intelligence run by a guy named Jack O'Connor, who used to serve at NGA. He was a retired senior executive from NGA and has written a really terrific cultural history of the National Photographic Interpretation Center. But there are a number of other uh, schools around the country that have good programs. Uh, Some of them are more oriented on training intelligence analysts um, that's not what we're trying to do, but it's a perfectly reasonable endeavor. Uh, Mercyhurst University up in Pennsylvania is definitely the leader in this field. But there's good intelligence programs at University of Texas, El Paso, at the Citadel, uh, a number of other places. Typically, Intel courses attract students. But there's a number of schools you know around the country, and, and I think students come maybe out of you know, um, hoping they're going to find something sexy in these programs, and usually they do. But there's also a lot of really interesting and you know, often very difficult intellectual substance there as well. I mean, intelligence is a, is, is a really great field, whether you're approaching it as, you know, as a historian or as a political scientist or as somebody who just wants to get a job at the CIA. It's, um, it's so rich. It really is. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm just uh, yeah, I've just disappeared under the wormhole. I didn't intend to really have this podcast to really go on beyond some research I was doing <laughs> so I think but now I just can't stop. You know, one of the cool things about having your own podcast is you can answer ask any question you want, and yeah. you, you seem to have you seem to have a relationship with the Australians and um, you know the United Kingdom. I went to the military museum in Ottawa because I grew up right across the border. What was, and it's an often overlooked place during the Cold War, but could you talk a little bit about Ottawa during the Cold War and what that environment was like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a, a couple of quick thoughts. So first off, one of the most important, one of the most really pivotal uh, spy cases of the 20th century, of the Cold War, you know, came out of Ottawa. That was the defection of Igor Guzenko in late 1945. So he was a soviet gru that is to say military intelligence um, code clerk at the soviet embassy in ottawa and he defects in 1945 at great risk almost gets caught Um, basically short version is the canadians um, understandably perhaps are still very much in the wartime mode of the soviets are our allies and nothing dramatic ever happens in ottawa anyway and he has a hard time actually finding someone who will accept his defection eventually he succeeds after probably having a heart attack multiple times i imagine and he brings with him documents that indicate that soviet espionage in canada and the united states is massive and pervasive canadians very quickly share that with the americans and this is a big turning point there are enormous numbers of soviet spies here that basically nobody knew anything about and this is a problem. And so that was a very seminal case that, you know, that came out of Ottawa. And I think there's some of Guzenko's stuff in that war museum in um, in Ottawa, if I recall correctly. Um, then also during the Cold War, I mean, Canada was also, as you mentioned, an important transit point for Soviet and, you know, in the in the post-Cold War, Russian illegals. So these very long-term deep cover agents who take on... A, completely new identities and embed themselves in a target society. Uh, Canada was a useful uh, place for Soviet illegals who were aimed ultimately at the United States. And certainly there were illegals who were targeted on Canada itself. But many of them came to the U.S. um, just transiting Canada because Canada had, uh, the Soviets believed, Canada had a was culturally obviously very much like the United States, so you can sort of complete your training of what it's like to be a North American in Canada, but, but at the same time, also, they believed it had a, um, a less challenging counterintelligence environment, right? That you were less likely to be caught in Canada. So you can sort of take your baby steps, you know, in the West, in a hostile environment in Canada, which is probably gonna provide you a little more leeway for screwing up some things. And then we'll move you across the border. And in addition to that, and I forget the precise details here, there was at least one sort of whatever the Canadian equivalent of a county courthouse would have been that burned down um, in the, I guess, the very early Cold War. It might have been in the 40s. Anyway, any rate, what it provided was a convenient place from which Canadian identities could be stolen. Because you could say, ah, well, I'm, you know, uh, John Wilson, born, born and bred Canadian, and I was born in this place here. And no, you can't see my birth certificate because the county courthouse burned down. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? Geez. Yeah. Uh, and there's some more to it than that, but basically, that's right. So, um, yeah. So there were there there were there were some, you know, uh, I don't know, epiphenomenal uh, sort of advantages as well to being from Canada in terms of creating what the Soviets called, you know, the your legend. And I forget the precise details on the mechanics of that, but basically that's what it boils down to. But there were a bunch of reasons why Canada was, you know, um, a very popular place for Soviet intelligence officers uh, aimed at the United States to pass through uh, during, world, during the Cold War. And how would you
0: describe the, the cooperation between Canadian intelligence and American? Was there ever any bad blood between them or was it always cooperative?
1: Yeah, generally it's been pretty good. Well, I actually no, I'll go farther than that. But generally it's been quite good. The U.S. intelligence community has, from time to time, had concerns about the security, about the you know potential hostile penetration of the Canadian intelligence community, and sometimes those fears have been warranted, and sometimes they haven't. And you know, Lord knows, the American intelligence community has been <laughs> penetrated too. But those sorts of things are kind of to be expected. There hasn't really been any. I'm just trying to think here. There hasn't ever really been any sort of major crisis that comes to my mind in terms of U.S.-Canadian intelligence relationships, as there has been, for instance, with Britain. Now, Britain arguably is the one country that, you know, arguably is even closer to us, you know, in the intelligence terms than the Canadians. But there have been a couple of crises there. I mean, Kim Philby was a crisis. Snowden was was a bit of a crisis. The Suez affair in 56 was a bit of a crisis for the intelligence relationship. The U.S.-Canadian intel relationship has been generally on much more of an even keel and 98% as close as as the relationship with the Brits. You know, and one of the things is that Canadians look at the world in similar sorts of ways and have very similar sort of intelligence culture to the United States. So when intelligence officers from the two countries, whether they're collectors or counterintelligence people or analysts, as I was, get together, we're kind of talking in the same terms. When you say X, that means X to me, right? It's not like trying to talk across starkly different cultures. And obviously just the fact that we all speak English helps as well. So there's a lot of things going that underlie the ongoing strength of that relationship.
0: Yeah. I find Canadians to be, um, I've worked there as an actor quite a bit, but I find them to be, I mean, they're a lot, they're, it's definitely a different country. Yes. I mean, after, after 9-11, after 9-11, I was in Canada, 9-11. I remember going to a Starbucks and overhearing some conversation saying, oh wow, did you hear what happened to the Americans? At least in that coffee shop, that, that table, it gave me the feeling that, oh, we're a different country. I think sometimes Americans take that for granted.
1: Yeah, Americans don't get that, I think, you know, is unfortunate. And one of the things that's been, I know, very much on the mind of Canadian intelligence ever since 9-11 is ensuring no 9-11 style or 9-11 magnitude attack happens, I mean, obviously in Canada, their first priority, but also doesn't happen in the United States with the people coming through Canada. We talked about how all these Soviets and Russian spies came through Canada. Well, I've talked with current and former Canadian intelligence officials talking about how short of a 9-11 in Canada, a 9-11 in the United States, where the perpetrators came through Canada, it would be about the second worst thing that could happen to Canada. Because at that point, you know, the United States um, just closes the border, and put another and, wall. And, You know, right? Yeah, they'd, they'd put up another wall. That would be economically devastating for Canada. I mean, that would just be horrendous. So they work very, very, very hard on protecting us, not only because they're uh, allies and partners, but out of in, their enlightened self-interest.
0: Could you? Who are the? Who are the? What are the organizations in, in Canada?
1: Canadian intelligence community has a whole slew of small bits and pieces that I'm not particularly familiar with. You know, like us, a whole lot of their agencies have small intelligence components to them. But the three big moving parts in Canada that most directly, well, actually I'll go with four, um, that most directly relate to us. So first off is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which has aspects of the FBI, except that they don't have arrest authority. That's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police aspects of the CIA, to the extent that Canada does espionage overseas, which is limited but not zero, it's CSIS that does it. They're kind of, in some ways, more like Britain's MI5, actually. So the CSIS, as it's called, Mm -hmm. the Communications Security Establishment, which is the Canadian opposite number to the National Security Agency, which is like GCHQ, like the Australian Signals Directorate, like New Zealand's GCSB, is very much tied up in this automated system where signals intelligence gets collected by, you know, one country and shared on an automated basis with all the others. They're very, very much integrated into the Five Eyes signals intelligence community. There's, in essence, the intelligence assessment staff in the, uh, the privy cabinet office. So, sort of the... Canadian equivalent of our National Intelligence Council uh, that puts together their, you know, intelligence estimates and that sort of thing. And then obviously the Canadian military has its own intelligence components that are are focused on, you know, support to Canadian forces in the field. And given that the United States has operated alongside Canadian forces in Afghanistan since 2011, sorry, 2001, right? And obviously the, the Canadians were in West Germany with us during the Cold War, prepared to duke it out with the Warsaw Pact if World War III came. Obviously there's very close relationship as well there. I never really worked in that world. But those are sort of the four biggest pieces. But lots and lots of different Canadian ministries and agencies have intelligence components that I'm sure work with their opposite numbers in I imagine, for instance, that the various intelligence components of our Department of Homeland Security have lots of connections with the Canadian.
0: Well, what's their counterintelligence situation? I mean that would that also be C S I S
1: yeah, CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, is their primary counterintelligence, counterespionage, subversion agency, um, and they do they do very good work. They're well thought of. Thanks so
0: much for your time. Well, hey,
1: it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for being on the Live Drop. Good, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was my chat with Dr. Mark Stout from his office at Johns Hopkins University in Washington D.C. You can follow him on Twitter and other social media sites. The link will be in the Live Drop show notes at our website, LiveDrop.com. And the North American Society for Intelligence History can be found at intelligencehistory.org for more information. Thanks for listening to The Live Drop. Send us any comments or suggestions on social media. Uh, the email is the live Drop at gmail.com. We're always listening. End of transmission.